Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. In today's episode, we are privileged to learn from an Indigenous education leader. Kevin shares with us a book that he co-authored with Jennifer Katz called Ensouling Our Schools, a Universally Designed Framework for Mental Health, Well-Being, and Reconciliation. Kevin's lived experience shines through, helping all of us to understand how we can better welcome our Indigenous and non-Indigenous students into our classrooms and schools. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to Knowledge Hook Podcast. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Hi, Jennifer. Good to be here. Kevin, you are an incredibly accomplished man. You've done some amazing things, and the listeners might not know too much about you. So, you know, you're currently an instructor and faculty member at the University of Winnipeg in Canada, and we would love to hear a little bit about your journey. How did you end up going from a, a young child in an education system all the way to having your doctorate in education? By accident, really. I actually dropped out of high school twice, if you can believe it. Once in Manitoba and once in Ontario. I was uh, doing my OAC grade 13, which dates myself for how old I am. Uh, but I had dropped out of high school twice and ended up going back as, uh, as an adult learner. And one of my guidance counselors, somebody at school, somebody who was in the school system and passionate about kids, you know, one of these saints that uh, whose actions echo across the lives of young people, saw something in me and brought me on a, on a field trip, just him and I, to the University of Winnipeg and introduced me to people there. And, and that started my journey, my, uh, my love affair with academia. I love learning. I've always loved learning. My passion for learning, I think, is what really sort of saved my life, to be honest with you. Because I was passionate about learning, because I've always been excited about learning and reading and hearing other people's thoughts, I always had a teacher in my corner. Hey, no matter how much trouble I got in, Jennifer, some teacher would give me that tap on the shoulder and say, hey, you got to try. You've got to apply yourself. You've got a future ahead of you. I always had that reassurance, that affirmation. And that carried me all the way through to, to university and, and through my grad studies. And here we are is, uh, you know, thanks to the love of educators. Kevin, what an incredible way to start the podcast, because, you know, you've shared two things. First of all, you know, like you said, you dropped out of high school a couple of times. And for every student that is out there, we know that, you know, the kids that are dropping out, they need to be reconnected somehow. And the other thing that you said, it was always an educator that brought you back into the fold and how important educators are and the relationships that they have with students. You've described that beautifully. And what a thankless job it is sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes as educators, we don't get to see the impact that our words and our actions have in the lives of our kids. But I think that in a, and I hope I'm saying this in a humble way, I'm a testament to that. I think that those kind words, those gestures, those taps on the shoulder every time I had somebody advocate for me echoed through my life. And, and I hope that that's now making a difference for other young people as well. 
Kevin, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, we know ed- the educator role, whether you're, you know, a teacher in the classroom or an early childhood educator or a principal in a school, we know it's really tough slugging. And quite frankly, that's exactly why we do these podcasts is because, you know, we need recharging. We need to have the opportunity to be reminded of what an incredible role that we have. And, you know, you described that not only did they bring you back into education, you actually described it as saving your life. It's so profound. And I really appreciate you here to to tell us a little bit more about that. You know, most of the uh, teachers I had when I was growing up were non-Indigenous. And that's significant, I think, because, of course, we need to see more Indigenous teachers in schools. We need more representations. We need young Indigenous people to look up and see Indigenous role models, for sure. But it reminds me that there is a role for all of us to play in reconciliation. Hey, Those people that were my safe landing point, my advocates, my friends in this journey were non-Indigenous teachers. And it reminds me of the power that we have in uh, all of us in participating in reconciliation. Hey, Leaving behind a school system that's safe for all of our kids isn't just the work of Indigenous people or non-Indigenous people. It's us together as a community, people who chose a career in education because we know that as human beings, we have the sacred responsibility to love and care for kids, even if they're not our own. Kevin, this is such a hopeful stance. I just love that. And I can't wait to get into the conversation. Before we jump into the book that you wrote with Jennifer Katz, just one quick question. You have the role of Associate Vice President of of Indigenous Affairs at the University of Winnipeg. And like you said, you know, at a certain time, not a lot of Indigenous kids were even accessing university because of, you know, the way that they were treated in our education system. And, you know, you went back, you got your doctorate of education, you functioned as an associate vice president. Can you describe to us one of the accomplishments that took place while you were in that role, something you're really proud of that you think influenced education in Winnipeg and beyond Winnipeg? Well, I'll share two things, one personal and one more broader and public. When I was uh, doing my undergrad at the University of Winnipeg, I worked in security. I was uh, I was a security officer part time uh, to pay the rent. That was how I, I fed myself. And to go from being an undergraduate student working security to being in the president's office as an associate vice president for me speaks to, I think, the fact that as an Indigenous person, hey, I know that I inherited all of the intergenerational traumas, all of the difficulties, all of those barriers. I know that that's part of my life and I speak openly about it. But I also recognize that I inherited much more from my ancestors. I inherited courage in the face of hardship. I inherited love and compassion. I inherited that strength that has carried Indigenous people through hardship after hardship into today's world. Hey, And I like to think that it's part of that legacy of my grandparents and those that came before me that uh, made that possible. Hey, This uh, this opportunity to be of some influence at, at the university that I love so dearly. While I was there, I was the one in the administrative position at the time where we became one of the first universities in all of Canada. It was actually us in Lakehead at the same time. We implemented the Indigenous course requirement. So if you come to the University of Winnipeg or, or Lakehead University, and there's others that have adopted since, but we were the first, <laughs> it, regardless of your final degree, you have to take at least one course of Indigenous content. Hey? And 
that initiative started long before I was in that position. It, it started thanks to people like Wab Canoe and others, students who contributed their voice to that. Many, many people made that possible. But I got to be the one that responded to all the questions, the tough questions. Hey, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Should we do this? This is why we think it's a good idea. This is why we're critical of that decision. I heard all of it. But I'll tell you the most profound question that I had to face in that role about that initiative. And I'm, I'm going to be totally honest and make myself vulnerable here. The most profound question I faced came from my students, more than one, who booked time to come and speak to me in my office, non-Indigenous students who were, and you can't see this in audio, but I'm making air quotations here, forced to learn about Indigenous people, would come to me and, and ask the question, why is this the first time that I'm learning about this? And there was such a sense of, of frustration, of, of being brokenhearted, that they had been denied the opportunity to participate and change sooner, simply because it wasn't talked about. It was invisible. These things weren't discussed in school. And it's that sort of experience that reminds me that I think that many Canadians are searching for a way to participate and change. And we recognize that through no fault of our own, we've inherited terrible wreckage. And even though we're not responsible for what we inherited, even though we didn't create it, we have this opportunity to be a part of change. And so I think that that Indigenous course requirement has uh, sparked a lot of conversations. I think that it's led to a lot of good, and I'm very grateful to have been a part of those conversations. And Kevin, you know that those brave policy decisions, you know, have had an impact all the way through. And, uh, you know, I was the, the director of education in the public schools for Ottawa. And uh, a number of years ago, we went to the idea of what about in grade 11, if in the high school, the entire grade 11 English course was built around Indigenous writers. And, you know, it was the idea that if it was, we had already always had courses that were, you know, native language studies or, or, or native literature studies, but we didn't have something that, you know, a very tiny group of kids were accessing that one course. And this made it, you know, English is a requirement, a required course in grade 11. And it meant that every child was experiencing that, Indigenous, non-Indigenous. And you're right, the comment that you had with students saying, why didn't I know any of this? That's exactly what we heard from a lot of our non-Indigenous kids is that, you know, we just didn't know. And that's where I think there's a, a bright light, right, that we're starting to get better at that, that, you know, as a child, I didn't learn the history, the true history of Canada. And now that's starting to happen in our schools. And, and that's where truth and reconciliation will actually start to happen, right? Well, you know, I'm told that of the 94 calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and I actually had heard this from Grand Chief Wilton Littlechild in a public presentation he made, that of the 94, 72 are about education and awareness. And what that tells me is that the in their brilliance and in their courage, the people that created those 94 calls to action, the survivors, the commission, others who are part of that journey, understood that our best pathway forward was through education, that education is how we advance reconciliation, that whatever reconciliation is, it's going to begin with education, which places teachers, once again, educators on the front lines, hey? where schools were once used as weapons, our schools can become places of healing. Absolutely. Kevin, let's dive into the book that you co-wrote with Jennifer Katz. And 
I love the title. It's called Ensouling Our Schools, a Universally Designed Framework for Mental Health, Well-Being, and Reconciliation. I love the term ensouling. Tell me why you wrote this book. And I know that, you know, Jennifer's background was, you know, very much in that area of well-being. And when you look at the actual book, it's completely infused with the Indigenous way of seeing things. And it's just such a strong, strong combination. So tell me what the inspiration was. Yeah, that book was written by my dear friend and and colleague, Jennifer Cates. And I'm very proud to be a part of that. I have to be clear that anything brilliant in that book is hers. Any mistakes are mine. But I was very proud to be a part of that process and to have my name associated with that. I think that she did a lovely job. Uh, And I get so excited hearing how that book um, lands for teachers that are reading it and finding maybe some inspiration and maybe some guidance and ideas to help support the good work that they're doing. That term ensouling actually comes from Jennifer's father, who was a Holocaust survivor. And as a psychiatrist working with kids, he was a childhood psychologist here in Manitoba for most of, if not all of his career. When he reflected on schools, you know, and the impact that schools have on well-being, the, the experience at school that young people who are not experiencing well-being have when they go to schools, reflecting on that, what he had wished for was that schools could do more in souling, bringing soul back to schools, bringing humanity, right? Bringing that compassion, that the purpose of schools need not be about measuring and testing kids. It can be about loving and nurturing kids, that it's maybe not about putting kids through the same trials and tribulations that we had growing up, but maybe allowing school to be a launching pad for healing, for well-being, for maybe transcending some of the wreckage of the past, be that poverty or uh, oppression or exclusion, right? That school can become a turning point in the lives and the communities of people. And so that actually comes from the experience of a, of a Holocaust survivor reflecting upon his work trying to help kids and his wish for schools to bring that humanity, that compassion back into those buildings. That's amazing, Kevin. And I do a lot of work in the area of social emotional learning. And, you know, when I think of what we call social emotional learning now, what you're describing with Jennifer's father what we know about the Indigenous ways of knowing and thinking and well-being, it's the foundational piece for social-emotional learning. It's incredible how all of those pieces come together. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful to reflect upon the opportunity that we have. Hey, And as, you know, our, our, our cutting-edge pedagog- pedagogical science is catching up with maybe more ancient, more, more traditional wisdom, we're recognizing exactly what you said, that uh, the foundation for healthiness, the foundation for, for well-being in life, it's not testing, it's not high-stakes pressure, it's not beating kids up with content, it's about providing that place of wellness, hey? And if we can provide that place, kids will flourish. Kids are come, born into this world capable of flourishing. We just need to get out of the way of that. You know, in the, at the beginning of the book, you know, you kind of set the stage where you talk about, you know, some aspects of some current education systems, you know, result in stress and marginalization and isolation based on, you know, especially, you know, some of our American colleagues where standardized testing is such a big part of the schooling system. I think we're a a little bit better off in in Canada. But, you know, it's really ended up in some really significant equity issues. 
and, you know, particularly in Canada for our Indigenous students. Before we jump into kind of what we can be doing to make sure that's not the case, describe a little bit about the inequities that you've seen for Indigenous children. Let me start a little bit further upstream. Let me talk about the stresses that teachers experience. I work with a lot of teachers across the country who are people who I admire, thousands of people who I've met who have dedicated their lives and their careers to the well-being of their kids. And you know who I'm talking about, Jennifer. You're talking about those people who go above and beyond every day. They put their heart on the on the battlefield and leave it there and return time after time again to try and love and care for, despite the policies, despite the pressures, despite the limitations, the lack of resources, eh? All of those things put pressure on teachers, and they put pressures on kids. And I think that part of that comes from this sort of belief or this fear that if we turn our back on teachers, that they're going to stop doing their job. It's kind of this social fear that exists out there that we have to hold teachers accountable 24-7 or else who knows what's going to be happening in those classrooms, but it's not going to be helping our economy. It's not going to be helping our future. It's not going to be helping our bottom line. And that fear is causing so much stress in the world of education. Let's think about how we measure accountability. You already talked about it, standardized testing. And unfortunately, and not a lot of people maybe know this, maybe people will argue against this, but the truth is that at least in part, modern standardized testing has its roots in deep-seated racism and elitism. Okay? The world's first IQ test, which was published at Stanford University, was published by a guy named Lewis Terman, who was a eugenicist. And he actually took the work of Alfred Binet in Paris, who had been tasked with the job of trying to weed out kids who were, I'm very unfortunate that I have to use this word, but retarded, who were getting away with a free public education. Can't have that. That's a waste of money. And so Alfred Binet developed a system for identifying those kids so that they could be weeded out. And you could make a guess as to who those kids were, where they came from, and maybe what their families did for a living. They weren't the wealthy. They weren't the elite. They weren't the people that were already destined to old positions of influence. And so Terman took this work from Binet, republished it in English, uh, added American norms, and that became the Stanford Binet, the world's first IQ test. Now, I've had people argue with me that that's not the way they're used today. They're not used as a weeding out tool. They're not used as a tool of oppression because there is this legacy of racism embedded in these instruments that would prove that African-Americans weren't as smart as the rest of Americans or that Indigenous people in Canada weren't as smart as the rest of Canadians, that that's in the past, that that's not part of that clinical process anymore. But I think the onus of responsibility is on the people that create those tests and use those tests to prove that they're not causing harm anymore. Because I know that a lot of people in the general public still believe that those tools that have legacies of racism, of marginalization, of harm, tests that were used to justify the forced sterilization of women in residential schools, tests that were used to take children away from their parents, even up until the modern day here in Canada, it's on the people that use those tests and publish those tests to prove that that harm isn't continuing. Because the public still relies on those tests for that theory of accountability. We need to see that kids are, are doing well on these tests to know that schools are doing their job. The whole system, Jennifer, is inadequate to our needs as a society today. If our goal is to encourage equity and well-being, recognizing that that's the only future we have, both economically, sustainably, socially, 
And if we think here in Canada that the social problems of the United States that are happening, the crisis that that democracy is in right now couldn't happen here in Canada, I beg you to reconsider, hey, that our pathway into the future to avoid that kind of, of disaster isn't in high stakes testing. It's not in these legacies of assessment and accountability that have their roots in racism. It's in love for our kids. It's in creating the kind of environments where kids can flourish and be their best selves and bring that best self into their careers, into their lives. That's where the hope for for our future lays. Kevin, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I think of some of our American colleagues and, you know, the, the focus on standardized assessment far more than here in Canada. But I think the good news is that more and more practitioners are realizing that, you know, that is not what's in the best interest for kids. And I think policymakers are starting to come around to that. You know, I think of the pandemic and, you know, obviously the pandemic had some pretty horrific implications but the one thing that I think it has helped with education is that there's much more of a focus now on child well-being and educator well-being. And, you know, we're really looking at ways. And, and some of the things that we're realizing is when we look at the Indigenous ways of doing things, and when we think of how our ancestors did things, some of those things are starting to come back into place again. I think that's a positive thing. I think that uh, as we begin to renew that relationship that should have always been there between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in Canada, two things are, are happening, I think. One, a lot of non-Indigenous, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people are grieving the missed opportunities that we've had for these last 140-some-odd years, that the face of education could have looked differently if we could have had an equal exchange, if we could have been informed by each other, if we could have been an honest sharing, you know, I think that would have resulted in a better environment for all of our kids. But at the same time that there's some grieving, there's also that excitement that you're talking about. There's an opportunity to reimagine business as usual in schools. And as we begin to learn more from Indigenous communities that are finally able to share their voices and be heard and be respected as we're finally beginning to take those steps laid out in the 94 calls to action. I'm thinking particularly of call to action 62.2 that calls upon universities to provide education on indigenous teaching pedagogies and practices, right? That our schools are becoming richer for that. And not just for our kids, but for our staff as well. Because a career that sees kids flourishing, a career that sees kids Achieving their best self, what we refer to in Ojibwe as minopamatsuan, to live in a good way, to be in that good place, hey, that's a rewarding career. That's much more rewarding than having to fight with kids and discipline kids and give kids bad news and measure kids. Oh, my goodness. Much more rewarding to see them flourish. In the book, you talk about Indigenous ways of mental health and well-being, and it's such a powerful piece. You talk about the circle of courage. Tell me about the circle of courage. Yeah, you know, when I was a brand new university student, and we already talked about my journey into university, I was still very uncertain of my place as a first-year university student. And one of my professors who had taken a, a liking to me, a fellow by the name of Dr. Ken McCluskey, he was in education, had invited me to come and hear a native speaker okay, at the university. And I didn't want to hear a native speaker. I had no interest in hearing a native speaker because I knew at that time, and this is my you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old brain at that time, I knew that any native speaker at a university had to be an apple. 
Now, I don't know if your listeners have heard that term before, but an apple is an insult that's used in indigenous communities. It's a sellout. I knew that the only way you could be a scholar in universities and be native was by being a sellout. That's where my maturity was at the time. Might have been uh, more accurate at the time as well, right? Well, I think that what I witnessed, though, when my assumptions, because I had never seen any people become scholars in my family or in my community, it was so foreign to me. I went to go hear this speaker, and I was sitting in the audience, and from the moment he came out on stage, the first time I laid eyes on Dr. Martin Broken Leg, till this day, my life has been different. Because when he walked out, I saw this beautiful man who was obviously very proud of who he was and where he came from. He had his beautiful hair and braids. He had this beautiful, his clan medallion. He had his ribbon shirt on. I hadn't seen a lot of people in public be proud of being Indigenous back then. It wasn't something that you did. And yet this man came out clearly proud of who he was and where he came from and began to speak in a way that I hadn't heard a lot of men speak at that time. The world that I grew up in was filled with what we refer to now as toxic masculinity and unhealthiness, colonial ideas of masculinity. And this beautiful man walked out and talked about love and kindness and gentleness. And he introduced me to the Circle of Courage, which comes from his tradition, from the Lakota Sioux tradition. And my heart was desperate for what was in the Circle of Courage. I immediately connected with the difference that those four values of the circle of courage, belonging, mastery, independence, and generosity would have in the lives of young people. I became, my heart was filled with excitement to share this with other young indigenous people. It completely transformed my career. It gave me purpose. Hey, my purpose then became to fill up the lives of other indigenous kids. It came from places like I came from the inner city, the North end of Winnipeg to fill their lives up with that with love and kindness and gentleness, the same way that Dr. Broken Leg had shared with all of us, that circle of courage, which is the environment of flourishing for kids. If we can wrap our kids in that environment, hey, that's how we allow kids to be their best selves. Kevin, that is such a beautiful framing. If I've got that right, the four pillars are belonging, mastery, independence, and generosity. Yes. Lovely. Absolutely lovely. And you know what's really beautiful about that, Jennifer, is that, you know, I've had the good fortune now of being able to share uh, my experiences with the Circle of Courage around the world, literally around the world at this point. And I haven't found anybody that fundamentally disagrees with those values. You know, it may look a little bit different. The words may be different. The graphic, the, the medicine wheel graphic, the logo, the symbology might be different. But the sentiment is the same. You know, and I think it's really, really beautiful to find this model, this approach to education, this pedagogy that's grounded in Indigenous wisdom that is trauma-informed for today's world, that meets the needs of today's kids, that allows us to reimagine business as usual in schools in a way that creates an environment where regardless of whatever crisis is going on out there, and there's so many, there's so many reasons to be afraid, to be angry to be frustrated, but at least that when they're with us, we're in this environment, we're safe together. Hey, it allows for kids to walk into our classrooms and go oh, and be safe. That's a beautiful sentiment, Kevin. And 
you know, have you seen where schools have adopted that stance, that circle of courage? You know, what are the reactions to from Indigenous children and what are the reactions from non-Indigenous children when they're in an environment that openly talks about that circle of courage and those four elements? I have seen it. And I'll, I'll start with experiences working with Indigenous schools, particularly in communities on reserve. The Data is unquestionable, I think, at this point in time. It paints a very, very clear in-focus picture that when children have access to culture, to their own history, to their own traditions, to their own identity, that will translate into better academic success. That if we can provide kids with that sense of self, that sense of identity, and that sense of pride, which all children should be able to grow up with, it results in better academic success because children are naturally capable of learning. They may may be learning at different places on a spectrum, but we are pre-programmed to learn and to flourish and to strive and to achieve and to struggle and to experiment and to practice and to learn, right? And if we take these wisdoms into a modern school system, you know what I'm finding is that not only are teachers less stressed, less stress because they don't have to deal with bad kids. One of the things that's inherent to the circle of courage is an understanding that we don't work with bad kids. We work with kids who may have done bad things, but there are no bad kids in our schools. There are kids who come from sometimes horribly traumatic environments, insecure environments, abusive environments, environments that are contrary to the values of circle of courage. We know that. But kids aren't responsible for the environments they come from. And if we can reframe our conversations from bad kids to kids that need circle of courage, love, and, and support, it takes away a lot of the stress. We don't have to go home angry at the end of the day. We don't have to go home frustrated, okay? Because we're not responsible for changing people in that model. We're just responsible for the environment that we create. So that's one thing. That's teachers are, are less stressed. But here's the second thing, Jennifer, is that I'm finding that schools and classrooms that adopt this, those kids are growing up emotionally literate. Could you imagine if our generation, Jennifer, had grown up being able to speak about our emotions, our traumas, our experiences, to be able to set boundaries with one another, to be able to enforce our boundaries, to know that we are worthy of respect? What would our relationships have looked like? What would our families look like? Kids are growing up with that now and they find themselves in the care of teachers that are, uh, I suppose, courageous enough to step off the beaten path and try something new. It just makes so much sense. And, you know, I obviously grew up in a very privileged environment. But, you know, that idea of talking about emotions, we were never to talk about our emotions. That just never happened. And, you know, so even for children from non traumatic backgrounds and experiences, this is so supportive to all children. It might be necessary for some, but it is just such a good way of learning and being for all of our children. You know, we started off this conversation talking about, you know, some of my professional uh, achievements, and I'm grateful for that. I truly am. And I, I, um, I recognize that that's the work of a community and not just myself. But there's also my personal journey as a human being. And I, I think in many ways, my professional achievements have <laughs> outpaced my personal accomplishments and that I still find myself dealing with the consequences of a childhood like that, an environment where we weren't allowed to talk about feelings, where we were never allowed to process traumas. You know, a lot of those wounds, a lot of that history still affects my life today. And I know that there are a lot of people in my generation that can relate to that. 
okay, that we carry those, those intergenerational wounds. And it can create chaos in our lives even today. And so to think about a generation of young Indigenous people that are growing up free of that, hey, as Cindy Blackstock has said, Cindy Blackstock, one of the most important Canadians alive today, as she has said many times, we want this to be the last generation of children that have to heal from their childhood. Such an important statement, and I've certainly heard Cindy speak, and uh, very powerful words, and uh, it gives us all the uh, motivation to get out there and do some things differently. In the book, a, a last comment about the book before we kind of wrap things up. In the area talking about education for reconciliation, you talk about the medicine wheel for well-being. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that and how it supports children. So the medicine wheel is an example of Indigenous wisdom and Indigenous teachings that can be a guide in today's educational systems. And if you go from one community to the next, and we want to be nation-specific, if I'm speaking to Ojibwe people here in southern Manitoba, or if I'm speaking to the Cree of northern Manitoba or any nation across what is now Canada, they may understand their, their medicine wheel or their teachings differently. And our obligation as teachers is to be in relationship with the people whose lands or schools are built upon. But the medicine wheel is an example of how we can learn from the teachings of the past, the traditions, the wisdoms of Indigenous people to help navigate a future. And I'm going to be honest with you, Jennifer, and and this may sound strange, but I actually think that reconciliation and this renewed relationship, this opportunity that we have to share and to learn with each other, to create the best possible future for our kids, is really the hope we have for a healthy future. We know that the tank is running empty on this way of life. We're running out of time living the way that we have been living. And I think that many of the things that we see going on in the world are completely incompatible with Indigenous worldviews. A view of the world that sees it as being a resource for extraction. A world of competition where the goal is to get as much money as you can so that you can build a spaceship to spew poison into our air to go up into space to brag about it completely incompatible with a worldview that sees a sustainable future. I think if we can begin to tap into some of these wisdoms, hey, some of these sacred relationships with the living world, there's a hope for the future for all of us in that. So when I talk about well-being and Indigenous teachings, I'm talking not just about the individual level, not just about the teachings that can allow us to navigate the stages of our life, maybe allow us to be more emotionally literate, allow us to be more respectful in our relationships, but a way of living, hey, a way of being on this planet that doesn't tax the future by taking away any possibility for a healthy way of life, hey, the kind of way of life that lives in balance, you know? And I'll I'll share one last story with you if we've got time, you know, and I often share this story with people, you know, when I was a young guy, I had been uh, adopted. That's how I get the last name Lamoureux. That's certainly not the name that I was born with, uh, (laughs) which which gives me the same name as a politician, which has been frustrating since I was a kid. (laughs) But as a young person growing up away from my family of origin, I was very angry. I was a very angry young Indigenous person. And My politics at the time were not the way that they are today. I would have had a hard time with this idea of reconciliation. That's not where my heart was when I was a kid. And I had this twisted idea about what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be Indigenous. I believed that being a man meant being tough, being silent, not showing emotions. It was a very disrespectful way to live. 
And being indigenous was about fighting for me. It was about fighting against everything in the world. But I was lucky, Jennifer. I was one of the lucky ones because my family, even though I didn't live with them, always tried to reach out to me no matter where I was. And I've moved a lot growing up in and out of care of different families. I've moved about 56 times by the time I was 18. But my family always tried to find me no matter where I was. And they reached out to me. I think I was maybe 16. My uncles wanted to take me hunting because they were afraid that I was going to forget how to be a real Indian. All right. This is the context of the phone call that I got. They were worried I was going to forget how to be a real Indian. And I knew what a real Indian was. Remember, it was being angry. It was fighting. So they wanted to take me hunting, which was awesome because I knew they were going to put a gun in my hand and that was going to be so exciting. Hey, matched my politics at the time. That was great. So they came to pick me up one, I'm guessing, November morning. Uh, I got into the truck and being with my family, my uncles after so many years, we like to tease. And I think this is common for many Indigenous communities, particularly in my family. We like to tease. And as a teenager, I had this ego so big, it could barely fit in the truck. And they start teasing me and I'm getting angry. I'm getting frustrated. <laughs> we finally get to where we were hunting after what seemed like a forever long drive. And they gave me the basics about, you know, handling a gun safely, going out, you know, all the things that you might need to know the basics. And they sent me out. My heart was pounding. I was holding a gun. Now, the defining characteristic of hunting is not excitement. It's not, it's not heart-pounding excitement. It's a lot of waiting. By the end of the morning, all that happened was I had gotten cold. I was sitting there by myself. I was leaning against a tree, I think. And off in the distance, as I was sitting there by myself, trying to warm up my hands, feeling angry, I saw a flicker of movement. And I very quietly unslung the rifle, and I looked down the scope, and I saw a deer. It was probably about 150, 200 yards out. And Jennifer, I had never seen a deer that close through a scope, through that magnification. It was so close. It was like you could reach out and touch it. And it was beautiful. It was stunningly beautiful. I could see the, the steam coming from her nostrils. I could see the glistening of her eyes and how strong she was under her hide from living and running in the woods. So powerful. But I was supposed to hunt, and I realized this. And so I, I lined up my shot, and I, I was taught to pull the trigger on the exhale when your body is most still. And I got through that exhale that and I, I hadn't pulled the trigger. I didn't want to pull the trigger. I just wanted to keep looking at this animal. But then I started to get nervous. I started to get nervous that my uncles were going to see that I had failed to pull the trigger. They were going to see that I wasn't a real man. They were going to see that I wasn't a real Indian. Hey? And I was ashamed of that. And my ego couldn't handle that. So I lined up the shot again and I, I took that breath. And as I was exhaling, this time I was angry. And I was angry for being in that situation. I was angry that they were doing this to me because I didn't want to hurt that animal. I was angry at myself for failing to be whatever it was that was supposed to make me a man I didn't have. Clearly, because I couldn't pull this trigger. And I was angry at myself, I was angry at them, and I decided in that moment of anger and frustration and ego that no matter what, I was going to pull the trigger. And I lined up the shot, and I started the breath, and I heard the thunder clap of a gunshot echo in the woods. And it wasn't me that pulled the trigger, it was one of my uncles. And I looked through the scope, and I saw the animal's body as she fell. And he called out and we all began running from wherever we were in the woods to where this animal had fallen. And I was one of the people to get to her first. And she got there and she was dying. And I knelt down and I put my hand on her and I started to cry. 
I started to bawl. I, I uncontrollably, I was so sad. That feeling of finality, that feeling that something beautiful was lost, this feeling of, of tragedy. And it dawned on me, not then, but many years later, Jennifer, it dawned on me that for all the teasing that went on that day, none of my uncles teased me for crying over that animal. Hey? All that happened was they began to sing their songs and put their tobacco down and began to process the animal in a respectful way. I realized now, not then, that that was the Indian they were worried I was going to forget how to be. A human being that could weep at the loss of life for me to be able to eat. A human being that recognized the mutual obligation in taking food. They were worried that I was going to get the respect that I was going to get too used to pulling a ground of a pound of ground beef off the shelf and not have that relationship. That was the kind of Ojibwe man they were worried that I was going to forget how to be. And I think there's a lesson in that. There's certainly a lesson in that for me, that the future of a healthy family, a healthy world, a healthy community isn't in business as usual in Canada. It's in a different way of being. And I think that now, thanks to reconciliation, thanks to the courage and the dignity of residential school survivors that gave us reconciliation, we have this opportunity to get things right. And if we're going to be able to take advantage of that, it's going to happen in schools. Okay? So I'm so grateful to all of your listeners that are you know, courageous enough to even take those first steps to try something new. Kevin, my first comment is that I can only imagine how proud your uncles are of the Ojibwe man that you are. That story illustrates it, and everything that you've talked about so far illustrates what an incredible Ojibwe man that you are, and as well, an incredible educator. And I can tell you that the listeners, I have been enthralled with the comments that you shared with us and your stories. And uh, I can guarantee you that the audience is going to be reaching out to me and saying that they'd like to hear more about your work. Thank you. Thank you for helping all of us that are not Indigenous come to a point of understanding the truth and moving towards reconciliation. And we will continue to work together to do the right thing for our kids. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks to Kevin for sharing his cultural approach to mental health and well-being. He and his co-author have coined an important term, ensouling our schools. Post-pandemic, certainly many educators are thinking more about the relationship between well-being and learning. We have much to learn from Indigenous cultures who have recognized this connection for centuries. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may be interested in a podcast by another Indigenous education leader, Negan Sinclair which is called Indigenous Ways of Thinking, Indigenous Ways of Knowing. You can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.